right, well, we'll see how we go. All right, we're reading uh, this morning from Revelation chapter 3. I'm continuing our series through the book of Revelation. And I'll uh, read the first six verses. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, this is Jesus speaking, uh, he's been speaking since the end of chapter 1, and he says, uh, To the angel of the church in Sardis, writes the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not keep it, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names inside us, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord God, we uh, thank you for the truths um, that we've sung this morning, that we uh, have been raised up with you, that we uh, died in your death, um, and that we have been raised to life uh, in your resurrection. Uh, Lord, we pray that as, uh, as that song just said, Lord, that you would teach us to rely on you with every breath uh, as we study your word this morning, uh, that you would apply your gospel uh, deep within our hearts so that as we, uh, as we come to you uh, and as we live in you, that you would uh, be everything to us, you would be our life, uh, you would be our strength, and that we would uh, remember that our life is not our own, but yours. Uh, so we pray that you would bring this word uh, to our hearts as we study it this morning, uh, through your Holy Spirit, uh, and in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, I want to start this morning by sharing uh, some of my experience um, in, uh, uh, growing up in a Christian country. Uh, because it's a bit relevant to what we see in this passage. Uh, some of you have met or will know my parents. Um, they were both Christians uh, well before I was born. Um, they taught me the Bible, they taught me the Gospel. Um, I was brought up by Christian songs uh, from a very young age. I um, went to a rigorous Bible teaching church. Uh, I was in Sunday school every week. Uh, I went to a Christian school, so all my friends were kind of part of this Christian world. Um, and I was everything you'd expect a Christian kid would be. I was obedient, respectful, quite courteous, I was eager to help. I could recite uh, Bible verses, I could uh, name the books of the Bible in order, I could uh, sing all the songs we did at church, many of them by heart. Whatever you think of as a good kid, a good Christian kid, I was that. Um, and so growing up like that, I just kind of figured I was a Christian. You know? I, I looked like a Christian, I acted like a Christian. All my, all my friends and even most of the adults in my life thought I was a Christian. 
that if I looked at the text as like a Christian, then clearly I am a Christian and God has forgiven me. That, that seems logical, right? All dogs have four legs. My cat has four legs. My cat is a dog. Christians act a certain way. I act that way. Therefore, I am a Christian. The logic just doesn't work like that. When I was about 13, I realized I wasn't right with God. I did confess my sins for the first time. And and then I was sort of gradually over over time, I learned more and more that being a Christian is not about what I do, it's about what Christ has done for me. Which we'll get back to a bit later on. But the point I want to make now, to start with, is that it's easy to confuse a sort of morally good life with a Christian life. It's easy to confuse what we would call, you know, just a good life. Someone who does the right thing, knows the right stuff, a good life. It's easy to confuse a good life with real spiritual life. What's the difference then between a good life and real spiritual life? Well, the passage uh, we have before us this morning is all about real spiritual life. And it has uh, uh, three key things to say about uh, real spiritual life. Now, the first thing we'll see this morning, um, and you'll see the points in your bullets, and the first thing uh, is precisely what sets real life from good life. Um, and it's the source, the source of life. Again, as you see in the bulletins, this comes from the first half verse. To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the spirit, seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, we've been in Revelation for a few weeks now, and I said uh, last time I was preaching. Um, that these introductory parts of these letters, um, where, they, where Jesus introduces himself, um, they communicate the gospel core of the passage, the principle that lies at the core of the passage. It's often symbolic, maybe even a little cryptic, uh, but it's the gospel core that if we get this, it can, it, the whole passage is built on that truth about Jesus. Um, So Jesus calls himself here the one who has the seven spirits of God. Um, We came across that phrase, the seven spirits of God, back in chapter 1. Greg preached from uh, chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, and we saw then uh, that the seven spirits is John's kind of uh, symbolic way of describing the Holy Spirit. Um, and the significance of that here, the reason Jesus is bringing up that he has the seven, that he has the Holy Spirit, he has the seven spirits of God. Uh, the reason he brings that up is that throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit gives life. Uh, in John chapter three, Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, "Unless you are uh, born of water and the Spirit." Um, in other words, you, uh, uh, unless you have life, not just the physical life, but life from the Spirit, 
unless you have, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And why is that? Well, chapter 6, verse 63 of God's Gospel tells us plainly it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So, Jesus, so when Jesus says here in Revelation, the words of him, I am him who has the seven spirits of God, he said, I am the sole source of life. I give life, I create life, I sustain life. You have life, not just physical life, but more importantly as well, spiritual life. You have life only in me. Our second element of the description drives at the same point. Uh, Jesus has the seven stars. Uh, again, from chapter 1, we know that's a symbol of the angels who represent the seven churches of Revelation the written to. And these angels point to, if you like, the heavenly existence of the churches. They have to do with the spiritual life of the churches. Jesus has the seven stars for... To put it another way, he owns the spiritual life of his church. And then we just see, uh, this life I live is not my own, for my Redeemer paid the price, he took it to be his alone, to be his treasure and his prize. Uh, if you've ever played the board game Monopoly, I know the aim of the game is, is there in the title. You're going to buy up all the property in the city to have a monopoly on the property market in this sort of fictional game world. In the same way, Jesus has a monopoly on spiritual life. It comes from him. He owns the spiritual life of the churches. He controls life. He is the source of life. And again, this is the key gospel principle that undergirds the whole passage. All real spiritual life comes from Jesus. And on the flip side, any life apart from Jesus, no matter what it looks like on the outside, is fake life. It's dead. Real life is Jesus' life. And a good life apart from Jesus' life is no life at all. And that's exactly what Jesus says about the start of the church. Uh, that leads us to the second thing uh, that we see in this passage. The second thing this has to say about life. Uh, there's one thing we uh, talk about the lack of life in the Sardis church. Uh, Jesus continues in verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Uh, we have a lot of beautiful flowering plants in our garden. Um, it's just coming into springtime now, and the roses are just about popping up their little heads. Um, so that's pretty exciting. Over the next four or five months, we'll get lots of roses and probably, I don't know, bring a, cut a few off, bring them inside, put them in a vase. Uh, one of the great things about roses, I've learned, is that they look good in a vase for quite a while, probably even a, a couple of weeks if you put them in water and look at them. I also learned a couple of years ago that not all flowers are like that. Uh, our azaleas are in full bloom at the moment, and they don't do it all well in a vase. Uh, if I was to pick one, 
uh, and put it in a mask, and no matter what I do with it, in a couple of days it'll be a, a pile of sort of wilted petals around a bare twig. But what, it doesn't really matter what flower it is, sooner or later, they're all going to end up like that. Once you cut it off from the stem, it's only a matter of time before it wilts and dies. It might look alive for a day or a few days or a few weeks even, but cut that flower off from the source of life and it's dead. I think that's a good illustration of where the Sardis Church is at. They looked for all intents and purposes like every other flower on the tree. They looked like any other godly, vibrant church, but they were cut off from the life-giving roots, and the long and short of it was they were dead. Jesus would say, you have the reputation of being alive. Uh, now, we're not told exactly how they got to this point. <clears throat> uh, a lot of commentators um, think that it's probably that they disowned or downplayed their, their worship of Jesus uh, because there was a lot of Jews in Silas and they didn't want to fit in with the Jews. But at the end of the day, we can't really be certain what their situation was. Somehow, they had cut themselves off from the source of life, and so they were dead. Uh, Again, this is the lack of life that this passage addresses. Uh, The the second half of verse 2 gives evidence of their lack of life. Jesus says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. It's one thing to look like spiritual life on the outside, but having spiritual life on the inside, just because the outside... Just as their outward life wasn't real because it wasn't from Jesus, so too their outward actions weren't real because they weren't from Jesus. I know again, we've spoken probably a few times uh, in this series, uh, to remember that these passages are written to churches as a whole, not necessarily individuals. The Sardis Church altogether had rejected life in Jesus. The church had given up on the gospel that they said they believed. The church together was failing to show spiritual signs of life. Uh, And so this passage calls us to to ask first and foremost the hard questions of ourselves as a church. Uh, Is Christ front and centre in our church? Does the Holy Spirit empower everything we do? Are we characterised by real life and not just the appearance of life? Now I'm further convinced that Macro Community Church is characterised and empowered by the life of Christ. Um, the prayers uh, demonstrate a reliance on on God to bring life to all that we do. The preaching uh, and teaching both from the pulpit and informally as well, um, shows that we believe that we have life only in the gospel of Jesus. Now, if you think that's not the case, please do talk to the elders about that, because that would be of utmost concern. But but even if our church as a whole has spiritual life, uh, and even though this passage is addressed to a church as a whole, we should still 
we should still apply that on an individual level as well. Uh, like I said at the start, on an individual level, it's easy to confuse real life with spiritual life. Uh, sorry, good life with real life. Uh, plenty of Christians, uh, or plenty of people who call themselves Christians, uh, look like Christians without trusting in Jesus alone to save them. Uh, I think it's interesting to, to think about this church that we uh, look at here in Sardis compared with the, the previous churches that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, the, the church in uh, Pergamum and Thyatira, they were both uh, uh, rife with, uh, with sexual perversions and, uh, and idolatry and heresy. And, and so if this church was one of the few churches around that wasn't compromising like that, then, yeah, they're going to look like a living church. And I think we are sometimes prone to making the same assumptions these days as well. If there's a church or a person around uh, who calls themselves Christian, they, they talk openly about God, they don't give in to the sexual lies of our culture, they don't swear or lie, uh, and as best as you can tell, they say kind of stuff about kindness and forgiveness and compassion and all those sorts of things. Maybe even they stand up and, and confront sins in other people or in the culture. And what a great thing, we have a Christian. But they could be just like the Sardis Church, cut off from the real source of life. It's easy to be fooled by that by a good faith life. But more important, you could be deceiving yourself by your own actions, your own reputation. Just like I was, like I said at the start when I was a kid. I sincerely believed that I was a Christian because I did all those things and because other people thought I was a Christian. I thought I was right with God. But like I said then, being right with God isn't about what we do. Being a Christian isn't about what we do. It's about the life of Christ. It's about what Christ has done for us. Real life, as I said, is Jesus' life. And a good life apart from Him is no life at all. Uh, as a kid, I was told uh, over and over again that I needed to examine my heart when I truly believed in Jesus. I was told many times that I needed to confess my sins, but I was so sure that I was a Christian because of my reputation that I lay there lifeless as Jesus shook me like he shakes the Sardis church here. Wake up! You are dead. <laughs>
if you see that you really are dead, how should you respond? We see that in the rest of verses 2 and 3. Jesus says to the Sardis church, Welcome and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember that what you receive from her, keep it and repent. Jesus calls the dead to wake up, remember the gospel, and repent. Uh, how do we do that? Let's take it piece by piece. Uh, wake up, Jesus says. Uh, well, what can that mean but uh, to find life in the source of life himself? Uh, we've already seen how Jesus offers us life through his spirit. Uh, so waking up must mean then trusting and praying that he will supply and empower us with his life, that he will give us spiritual life, that he will be raised up with him as, the, as we've sung this morning. Uh, secondly, Jesus says, remember what you received and heard. The Sardis church and people like them, they know the truth. They've received and heard the truth. They know the gospel, they've heard it over and over again. Uh, and so what Jesus is calling for here uh, isn't, doesn't come through more, you know, intellectual learning. It doesn't come uh, by reading more at a it doesn't come by doing more outwardly. It comes, it's what Jesus is calling for is a hard attitude, a hard issue about owning the gospel at a hard level, believing it. It's a hard orientation that says, all I need is Christ, all the good I have is Christ. Remember what you received and heard, thirdly, keep it and repent. Uh, repent means reject in, in this context reject the belief that you have uh, that you have life in yourself believe that life is found only in Jesus uh, and then keep it uh, throughout Revelation that's a, a phrase that means <coughs> inside and out uh, I think it's, uh, it's helpful to look at the, the contrast with the next week's church that really did keep the gospel. Uh, in verse 8, Jesus says, uh, I know your work speaking to the Philadelphia church. Uh, he says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my name and have not, sorry, kept my word and have not denied my name. Uh, throughout the book of Revelation, keeping Jesus' word uh, means owning the gospel. Inside, believing it. And testifying it, testifying to it outside, no matter what it costs. Uh, verse 3 here, closing to the warning, Jesus says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I will come against you. Uh, Jesus is quoting himself here, um, some of you will recognize that from the Gospels. Uh, he's alluding to a parable he told. Uh, about a master who left his house for the evening and told his servants to look after the place. Uh, whether you've read the parable or not, you probably know where this is going. Uh, it's kind of a staple on, on sitcoms. The, the, yeah, the master goes out, tells his servants to look after the place, but of course some of them start partying. They crack open the booze, they get drunk. Um, in this case, they even mistreat the other servants who are trying to do the right thing. Uh, and they're certain, aren't they, that nothing is ever going to be found out 
God has plenty of time to clean up their act uh, and get everything together before the master gets home. Again, we know where this is going. Just as a, uh, Jesus talks about being a thief, like a thief in the night, uh, just as a thief turns up unexpectedly, so too, that's how the master of the house comes home. Uh, unexpectedly, he comes home early, uh, and he walks in on the whole affair, the party, the music, the booze, the mess, the drunken idiots being cruel to the ones who are doing the right thing. Uh, and, and just like on every other sitcom, uh, the servants are made to clean it all up, and they'll never speak about it again, right? says the master of the house will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces to serve and holding the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing Revelation 4 and 5, um, the word comes up five times. 
Uh, and it's, in, in those five times, it's, it's the uh, worship around the throne. Worship of the Father and of Christ the Lamb. Worthy are you, our Lord and God. Worthy are you to take the scroll. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, God is worthy. But just before we get there, Jesus calls his people worthy. Isn't that amazing? If it wasn't Jesus himself saying that, I don't think I'd believe it. Even with Jesus saying that, I can barely believe it. To say that mere humans are worthy of eternal life, to walk with Christ in full holiness. How can that be? Uh, the rest of the Revelation uh, explains that they are worthy because they have washed our garment, because we have washed our garments in the blood of the Lamb. Because they follow the Lamb wherever He goes through life and death. If you want to see Jesus, if you trust in Jesus' righteous life, if you are washed clean by His blood, if you have found life in His Spirit, uh, bringing about His resurrection in you, if you believe the gospel of Jesus, He says you are worthy to walk with Him in life. They will walk with me in life, for they are worthy. The one who conquers, anyone who conquers, will be clothed us in white garments. Jesus offers this promise to anyone who conquers through faith in Him. That in pure, white, holy, eternal garments, in eternal life, we will walk with Him in a fellowship with Christ in the eternal city of God. Uh, that is an eternal promise. It can't be taken away. Jesus says, the one who conquers will be both us in white garments, and I will never wash his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I've uh, read before from Malachi chapter 3. Uh, that passage talked about uh, God having a list of people uh, who are faithful to him. Uh, in the New Testament, well, of course, in the Old Testament as well, the list of God's faithful servants is called the mark of life. Uh, later on in Revelation, we see um, that ultimately this book is, is used as a record of the people who will inherit eternal life. Uh, and Jesus says, My people are on that list for good, never to be removed. Uh, we know from history that the Jews were cursing the Christians around that time um, by saying uh, explicitly that praying that God would block them out of the book of life. But Jesus assured the faithful Christians of Sardis, I will never do that. No matter what happens, you can be absolutely 100% sure that God will never remove your name from the book of life. Because life comes from the eternal, unstoppable life of the resurrected Lord Jesus. I won't love your name out, Jesus says. On the contrary, I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Uh, this is, uh, I think, a great contrast to the Christians whose works were incomplete before God in verse 2. Uh, in contrast to those incomplete before God, Jesus says, I will confess your name before God. Um, 
for those who have no real life, Jesus said, uh, I, will, I will expose and condemn their works before God. But for those who do have real life, who, who are faithful to him, he will honor them, honor their name before God. And I started asking, uh, I started by asking, what's the difference between a good life and real spiritual life? Uh, on the outside, from an earthly perspective, maybe not all. But from a heavenly perspective, in the sight of my Father, as Jesus says, the contrast is stark. On the one hand are the dead, who are soon to be publicly exposed, ashamed, humiliated, judged, and guilty, and sentenced to death when Jesus returns. On the other hand are the living, the faithful, the pure, the undefiled, who belong to him whose names are sealed, permanently engraved in the book of life, and who will be honored in the sight of the whole heavenly host as they walk with Christ in purity and glory for eternity. The difference isn't seen by looking at someone's works or by looking at people on the outside. The difference between a good life and real life is seen by looking to Jesus, the source of life. So I implore you, look to Jesus. Work out which group you belong to before Jesus returns. Because as we read in Malachi, when Jesus returns, you will see once more the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve For the whole day is burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil doers will be stubborn. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. He who has a fear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, we